welcome you all to LifePoint. This is a great church. Seriously, we love this place. My family and I, we love LifePoint Church. It is a great place to call home. So in this series that we're in right now, this book of Galatians, we're in this series, we're looking at key passages from the book of Galatians. It was a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to a number of early Christian churches that were planted in an area known as Galatia, which is now in present-day Turkey. And Paul's, Paul's own life had been dramatically shifted after he had an, an encounter with Jesus. And so he devoted his life to preaching the gospel to unreached areas. And after leaving Galatia, men known as Judaizers, they entered into the region and they began working to convince the new Christians there that, that Paul was not a real apostle, apostle and that he had not preached the true word of God. And so the book of Galatians is this letter that he wrote to these churches during this time and it has two main focuses. The first is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the second is the freedom that is found in it. And so in this series, we are discussing these biblical truths on finding true freedom. It's the gospel, and it's not the only way that we enter, it's not only the way that we enter into the kingdom of God, it's the way to live as part of the kingdom. It's the way that Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. And so we're going to see Paul showing these young Christians in Galatia that their spiritual problem is not only caused by failing to live in obedience to God, but also relying on obedience to him for their salvation. And so we're going to see him telling them that all they need, all that they could ever need is the gospel of God's unmerited favor through Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. This is the gospel, the message that we are more wicked than we ever dared to believe, but we are more loved and more accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. This is the gospel that we are studying today. And so the text that we're looking at today is six verses in Galatians, Galatians 3, verse 23 through 29. So I'm going to read it all, and then we're going to kind of break it down verse by verse. It says, Now before faith came, we were confined under the law. We were kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, but now faith has come, and we are no longer under a custodian or supervision of the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were, as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the first thing that we see in verses 23 and 24 is that we were confined under the law. The early church was confined under the law. Paul uses two meta here, metaphors here first by saying that before faith came, we were confined under the law. We were kept under restraint until faith would be revealed. Other translations say that we were locked up or we were protected by military guards. And then secondly, in verse 24, Paul writes that the law was our custodian. Other translations say it was our schoolmaster or our guardian or tutor until Christ came. There's a Greek word, and anytime you're asked to guest speak somewhere, you always got to add some Greek in there because it makes you sound really bright. And so, so the Greek word for custodian or tutor here is pedagogus. And you might have heard that word in, in the Missy Elliott song, is it worth it? Let me work it. Is this pedagogus yet? 
I think it was, I think it was something, something like that. But uh, anyway, so in the home of Paul's day, the Pythagogus was a tutor. They were a disciplinarian or a schoolmaster. And they were usually a slave or a servant of the family who supervised the children on the parents' behalf. And the schoolmaster, they would take the son and they would bring him along into maturity to the point where he could get out of his own heart. Out of his own heart, he would do what was right. He did not have to be dependent on external restraints or rules or laws from the schoolmaster to direct him in that way. The schoolmaster was not a teacher. The schoolmaster was a disciplinarian. The schoolmaster made for dang sure that a child learned. The schoolmaster would use the rod and say, kid, you're going to learn one way or another. The schoolmaster could provide restraints, external guidance, but they could not change the heart of that child. They could not make him mature. That is how the law functioned for Israel. It gave a bunch of explicit restraints to them, but it did nothing for the heart of the people And that's why it did not bring great blessing. The law was just too much to handle. It was unrealistic. It was fear-based. It was kind of like the task list that my wife gives me whenever whenever she leaves me at home with the boys for for a few hours. Just so many things to keep track of. And I'm thinking, holy crud, if we're all alive, I did good. You know what? No, actually, she really doesn't. She trusts me. She, She thinks I do a good job. So everybody's alive when she gets home, typically. So, but the law, it was too much information. I, I love short text messages. Who, who in here loves short text messages? Hey, you want to go to lunch? Yes. How you doing? Good. Like quick, short, and simple, but the law was too much. It was too much to keep track of. It was like the text message that you get from your mother-in-law saying what's going to happen over Christmas and Thanksgiving this year. It's just too much stinking information. You just have to move past it. The law functioned as a job description. It was a task list. It was an impressive schoolmaster. And so it caused rebellion because it did nothing for the heart of the people. And so Paul is reminding the early church of who they were under the law. And now he reminds them and he reminds us of who we are, at, who we are now, now that faith has come. The reason why law alone didn't bring great blessing can be found in Hebrews 4 verse 2. It says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they had heard did not profit them because it was not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Because the law didn't mix with faith, faith in the mix is what enables a person, when they get it, to have a new heart and no longer need just external restraints to do what is right. They do what is right out of a heart of faith because they love what God loves. Man, I, I think right here, I think this is a side note. As uh, This is not a parenting message, but I think this is a great point for, for parenting that, that I think there's some guidance here in this that we can't just be law for our children. If we simply just put on restraints and give external guidelines and do nothing for the inside, nothing for the heart of them, it's going to cause fruit that we don't want to see. It might cause rebellion, but I believe a whole array of other things has to be a part of parenting, I believe prayer and worship, Bible reading, mercy, forgiveness, the gospel, fed into, feed these things into the heart of your kids. And then these guidelines, these laws, these rules will be loved and embraced in the long run out of a heart of obedience, out of a heart of trust and honor. So Paul is bringing the law and love together. No other religion does that. It's either all law or all love But this brings the two together. Law, because we have a problem. Love, because Jesus wants to save us. 
he uses the law to bring us to his love. 1 John 5, 3, it says this, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For the early church, the law was burdensome because it did not meet with faith. The law did not tell them about salvation, but about their sin. It showed them and it shows us that we are lawbreakers. And it proves to us that we cannot be the solution. Since we are unable to be perfect law keepers, the law reminds us that we do not just fall short of God's will. That we don't just need to do a little bit better. But it reminds us of that song that we've been singing here lately. That glorious day that we needed rescue and our sin was heavy until, verse 24, until Christ came. Now my chains break at the weight of his glory. That I needed shelter. I was an orphan until, verse 24, until Christ came. I was broken and now I'm in, I, and I was in bondage. Verse 24, until Christ came and now he is my healing and now his love, not man's law, is the air that I'm breathing. And I have a future, a future that is exceedingly abundantly more than I could ever achieve or attain or climb to. I was blinded until, verse 24, until Christ came and now my eyes are open and he called my name. He called your name, my son, my daughter, and I ran out of bondage. I ran out of the grave, out of the darkness into that glorious day. That is some good news because Christ came. Faith is here and though we are, are sinners, we are accepted by him despite our sin and there is no condemnation. There is something better than law alone when faith came and faith has come. Jesus plus nothing is what equals our salvation. This is the gospel. You can't add or take away anything from it. Jesus is the reason for our freedom and for our redemption. Galatians 3, 5, it says, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you leave the mess, believe the message that you heard by faith about Christ. It is because faith has come. Galatians 3.25, now faith has come and we are no longer under a custodian, a supervision of the law. John Piper, he says, we are out from under the burden of the law. It's not that the law no longer has any validity, but it is no longer a ladder that we are having to use all of our effort and wear ourselves out on trying to climb into heaven. But the ladder has now fallen and now it's a railroad track of joyful obedience. It is not on us anymore as a burden. We are on it. And now we are in a cart of grace pulled by the engine of the Holy Spirit on the tracks of obedience. Aren't you so thankful that you are not having to cry, climb a ladder to get into heaven, to, to, do, to do just good things and to obey the law? I'm so thankful that we are in a cart of grace today. Galatians 5:18. Those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. We are led by the Spirit. And that means that God, by faith, has come to me. And he is changing and he is shaping my heart to his heart. My thoughts are becoming his thoughts. My will and my emotions are becoming like his. And I start loving what he loves and hate what he hates. And now for us to do what he wills is not a burden because it's our passion. Because our identity in Christ is defined. Our identity in Christ is changed. We have a new identity in Christ. 
And that's in verse 26 through 29 of the text today. Our identity in Christ is defined in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You are all sons of God through faith. So this is not something that we have to strive for. This is not a goal that we must attain. This is who we are already. By putting our faith in him, we are identified as his sons and as his daughters. It is through our faith that we are adopted as his sons and daughters. And this idea of adoption is incredible. And we will touch more on this in, in just a moment. And then in the next verse, Galatians 3.27 for as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. It says like putting on new clothes. Your physical baptism, it doesn't save you, but it is a significant step of obedience as it publicly shows the commitment that you have made in your heart to follow Christ. Baptism is going public with your faith. It's a sign of the old Jew being buried and being raised to a new life in Christ, a new identity like putting on new clothes. And Paul, he tells these believers, he says that when they were baptized, that they have put on Christ or they have been clothed with Christ. And I love what Timothy Keller, he talks about in his book, Galatians for You. He talks about this idea of clothing ourselves with Christ, in Christ, that it implies four amazing things. The first thing is our primary identity is in Christ. Clothing tells people who we are. You can tell a lot about a person about their clothing. Anybody, do y'all remember Jinko jeans? Do, we, do you remember these jeans? What were those? I remember I had friends that wore them, and they're, they're all still idiots, actually. Like, I, I don't know what that identified you as. And what They were ridiculous. Anyway, but... I just, I, I thought we needed to bring those back. I thought it'd be good for everybody to see Gene Coach. That was so dumb. That was a bad era. That was a bad era. Uh, anyway, but, but you can tell a lot about a person about what they wear. Every kind of clothing, is, it's some type of a uniform showing that we are identified with others of the same gender, the same team, the social class, or a national group. But to say that we clothe ourselves in Christ is to say that our identity is found in no other classification but in Christ alone. The second thing is the closeness of our relationship to Christ. To be clothed in Christ shows the closeness of our relationship to him. Your clothes are kept closer to you than any other possession. They go everywhere with you. We rely on them to shelter us every moment. So to say Christ is our clothing is to call us to a moment-by-moment -moment dependence and awareness of Christ. We are spiritually to practice his presence. And the third thing is the imitation of Christ. To practice the presence of Christ, it entails that we continually think and act as if we were directly before him. Psalms 56, 13, it says, For you have rescued me from death, and you have kept my feet from slipping, so now I can walk in your presence, O God, in your life-giving light. It means that we take Jesus into every area of our life, that we put him on, we put on his virtues and his actions. Being clothed in Christ, we are imit imitators of him. I love it. My son, he likes to put on, I've got this red hat from Keystone, Colorado that I've had since like forever. 
and it's disgusting and it smells terrible. And I use it when I'm working outside and stuff. And my son loves to put that hat on and he just acts like he's me. And he's like, hey, daddy, like he imitates me. And I think it's the coolest thing. But that's what we are when we're clothed in Christ. We become imitators of Christ. And the fourth thing is being clothed in Christ. It shows our acceptability to God. Clothing is worn as adornment. It covers our nakedness. Since the fall of man in Genesis, God has been providing clothes to cover our shame. To say that Christ is our clothing is to say that in God's sight, we are loved because of Jesus' work and his salvation. When God looks at us, he sees us as his sons because he sees his son. The good Lord has given us his righteousness, his perfection, and his protection to wear. So Galatians 3.27, to be clothed in Christ is a picture of our new life in him. It means that our identity has changed. His spirit and his character infuse and permeate our lives. And this goes so far beyond keeping of rules and regulations. This is to be in love with him, to be clothed with Christ, to be identified in him. And next week, man, if, if, you're, if you're wanting to get baptized, we're, we're doing baptisms right here next Sunday. If you want to go public with your faith, declare publicly that you have been raised to life in Christ, then we invite you to visit the Next Step booth immediately following this service and sign up for baptisms. We would love to celebrate with you, you being clothed in Christ. It's an exciting, exciting thing to go public with. And so we invite you to do that. Okay, next, next verse, Galatians 3, 28. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In Christ, there is no division between different races, between different social statuses or gender. There are still distinctions in culture. Thank God life would be lame if we just had hummus or spaghetti or it would just be lame. But there are still distinctions in culture and males and females in the way that we live. We are not all identical or interchangeable, but we are all one. It means that I am a Christian, a follower of Christ, a son or a daughter of Christ before I am anyone or anything else. And so Paul points out three barriers that usually divide people. And the first thing that he points out is the cultural barrier. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Paul is saying cultural divisions are to have no part in the church. People of one culture do not need to become like another culture in order to be accepted by God. And at LifePoint, we say that everybody's welcome, that nobody's perfect, and that anything is possible. At LifePoint Church, we will love and accept one another across all racial and cultural and even political barriers. We love and accept all. And then the second thing that he says is the class barrier, that there is neither slave nor free. We do not associate according to a class, but we associate across such barriers. The poor or the modestly paid worker must not be made to feel inferior in any way, and the well-off must not be resented or shunned or made to feel superior because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Isn't that good news that the ground is level at the foot of the cross? And then the third thing that he points out is the gender barrier, that there is neither male nor female. He says both men and women are equal in Christ. Both men and women are equal in Christ. At LifePoint Church, we believe this too. We believe that men and women are equally gifted, needed, necessary, and valuable because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
There is no division in Christ. There is division on Facebook, but there is no division on Christ. Okay, and then the last verse in the text today is Galatians 3, 29. And it says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This last verse of the text today, it speaks to the promise for those that are identified in Christ, reminding us that we are sons, reminding us that we are daughters, heirs according to the promise. There's a true story that I read this week about a college kid in Germany named Sergei Sudev. He was a normal college kid working to put himself through college, living on around 240 bucks a month. And he got a knock on the door by a man in a suit with a briefcase. And Sergei, Sergei let him in to talk, and the guy brought him some bad news that his uncle had passed away. Sergei thought that this was very weird because he had only met his, his uncle just a couple of times. But it turns out that the man was a lawyer, and he informed Sergei that his uncle had passed away and he had no heirs. And when Sergei was a child, he had met his uncle at a family reunion, and he left such an impression on his uncle that his uncle decided to leave his entire fortune of $975 million to Sergei. Sergei said, are you joking? And the attorney said, no, son, you're a billionaire. He went from having nothing, being a poor college kid, having nothing, to having almost a billion dollars in the bank. Holy crud. I love my folks, and I would love to get a little something-something from them. But I swear, I'll be lucky if I get a couple of leftover bags of tater tots that are in their freezer. Like $975 billion. So I don't know what happened to Sergey after that. I don't know if he quit college or not. I know I would have. I did anyway. No, I'm just joking. No, I'm, I'm, jo I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, but we do know two things about this story. First thing is always be nice to your uncle. Always be nice to your uncle. And the second thing is that you have to believe that an inheritance like that would change everything, that your life would be radically different. And so if you're a follower of Christ, believing in Christ, his work on the cross and his resurrection and his forgiveness of your sin, you're going to receive an inheritance one day. And if God promises to give us an inheritance, then we have to believe that it might make $975 million look a little insignificant. I sure would still like to try it, though, but that's a lot of money. Ephesians 1.7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is our salvation. If we believe in Jesus, then we have two things, redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our sins. So Ephesians 1, 8 through 11, let's finish that off. It says, which he lavished up on us in all of wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So not only does God save us from our sin and restore us back to himself, he doesn't stop there. On top of all that, he also wants to give us an inheritance. He calls us his heirs. 
you don't just obtain salvation, but an inheritance also. And this should excite us, but it should also produce some questions like Sergey had had whenever he found out he had received all this money. Like, is this a joke? What kind of heirs are we? Romans 8, 15, and 17, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. My best friend in Dallas, he is, him and his wife are in the process right now of adopting a child, and whenever he told me that they were going to be adopting, I said, man, there is a kid that is about to hit the jackpot. And, and like that kid is going to have, he, he's going to have two parents that are absolutely crazy about him that intentionally and selflessly chose him or her that will provide a beautiful home and great education and an abundance of love and support. That kid is going to have two awesome brothers and one incredible sister that are absolutely crazy about him or her. And as an adopted child, everything that is theirs is going to be that kids. And I, I told him, man, that kid has hit the jackpot. But man, this is so true for us. You and me, we have been adopted as sons and as daughters of God. So you and I, we hit the jackpot. J.I. Packer, he says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. Romans 8, 16, 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So we are not just heirs, we are fellow heirs with Jesus. That means we're not just getting an inheritance, that we are co-heirs with Jesus. We're not second-rate heirs or B-team heirs. We're not the red-headed stepchild heir. If we're in Christ, everything that belongs to Christ is going to be ours one day. All that God promised, we will enjoy as his adopted sons and as his daughters. So what is that inheritance going to be? What is it going to be? Interestingly, interestingly, the Bible is a bit vague. It's a bit unclear about what it will look like. It only gives us some clues. And I think that's because the English language has a hard time explaining how unbelievable it will be. But in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it says, No eye has seen and no ear has heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for, prepared for those who love him. Nobody can even begin to imagine what God has prepared for those that he loves. Man, sign me up for that. I'm down with that. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4, it speaks more on our inheritance. It says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you. So Peter tells us four things about our inheritance, that we're getting it in heaven, not here on earth, that it's imperishable, that it's undefiled and it is unfading, imperishable. On earth, anything that we receive is going to be perishable. Anything we receive here is going to fade. Even $975 million, any inheritance we receive here on earth, no matter how great it is, will get old. It will get spent. It'll get used up. And we can't take it with us when we're done. 
Our lives are a lot like Monopoly. We get the board out, we get in the car, and we go around the board a few times. Along the way, we make some money, we pay some taxes, amen. We try to stay out of jail, if you can, and we acquire some property. At some point, though, the game ends. It doesn't matter what you've acquired during the game. If you're building motels on Boardwalk or collecting rent on Baltic Avenue, it doesn't matter. There's coming a day when the game is going to be over and you have to put it all back in the box. Life is just like that. You get to go around it a few times, but there's coming a day when you're going to die and none of that stuff is going to with you. It's all perishable, but it says that our inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. You ever notice why nothing ever truly satisfies here on earth? We have an idea that if we could just have this one thing, then life would be good and we'd be happy. And so we work really hard to get that new thing, that new car, that new truck, whatever it is. And then bills come in, the payments come in, and we realize it's just life. And so we decide there must be something else that we need. So we work harder to obtain that thing and only get it and realize it doesn't fulfill either. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in the heart of the man, not just in the heart of Christians, but he put in every man and woman's heart the reason that nothing on earth can truly satisfy us is because non-internal inheritance cannot satisfy an eternal longing. As sons and daughters, as heirs, our heavenly inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. Charles Spurgeon, he describes our inheritance in this way. He says, we have obtained an inheritance and the man who can truly say that the Lord is mine has an inheritance which death cannot wither, which space cannot contain, and which time cannot limit, and which eternity cannot explore. Man, this, is, this text is good news for us today. It reminds us that we are his sons and he, we are his daughters. And, and though this text was written to the early church in Galatia, it applies to you and to me and reminds me that the law alone would be more than I could handle. That if I was to be confined under the law, if keeping the law was my only route to, to be saved, then I would miss it and I would fail time and time again. I am so thankful that faith has come, that Jesus was added to the mix. Our faith has come and Jesus plus nothing equals our salvation. That is good news. Can you celebrate that today, church? I know that as, as I studied this week that, that, uh, that I was reminded of who I am. And I hope that was the case for you today, that you were reminded of your identity. You and me, we are now identified in Christ and we have been clothed in Christ. Our identity is in him as adopted sons and daughters. And if that's not enough, we are his heirs, heirs of the blessing of his grace, heirs of an internal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and never-ending. So I don't know where you're at today, what your struggle is or how unworthy you feel, but I want to remind you today that you are a child of God, that he calls you a son or a daughter of God. And if you will trust in Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved, you will be a son or a daughter and an heir in Christ.